It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. Yeah, the president sounded like he's concerned about it, but no specifics, no change in policy. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. Last week's severe weather and winter storm in Texas left millions of homes without power there. On Saturday, President Biden declared the situation a major disaster and plans to travel to the state this week to survey the damage. Meanwhile, the House Budget Committee is meeting to formally consolidate the $1.9 trillion coronavirus stimulus relief. President Biden will need Senate Democrats to stay united on this vote in order for it to pass, as no Republicans are expected to support the package. We'll start there with our all-star panel. National editor of the Cook Political Report, Amy Walter, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Tom Bevan, and co-founder of The Dispatch and host of the Remnant podcast, Jonah Goldberg. Well, Jonah, we should start with you since you have a firsthand knowledge of the disaster <laughs> in Texas. Um, you were stuck there, right? I was very much stuck there. I was in Austin there for a special trip with my daughter, and we were supposed to come home last Sunday. And instead, we didn't get out till Friday. The first thing that just I think people need to appreciate, it was a bad storm, bad icy conditions. Before the storm, there were bad icy conditions around. But if this had been Milwaukee, Detroit, or any place like that, that big Sunday storm would just have been known as Sunday. I mean, it was like, like they just had, they have no salt trucks. They have no infrastructure dealing with this kind of thing. And you forget living on the East Coast, how much our sort of city, you know, suburban life is geared around these eventualities. And so what was in many ways, a minor storm by Midwestern or East Coast circumstances was a life altering hellscape for Austin and Houston and these places. But I mean, not to belabor your trip, but you had five flights canceled. You were finally had to get out of Austin and go to a different place, Houston, to get a flight. I, I mean, yeah, I, I was, I had five, I had five or six flights canceled on two different airlines. I bought a backup flight on American. I was supposed to go out of United and then they canceled that one on me. There's literally no, no way to get food. And, and one of the, I mean, it, it was a little sort of walking dead-ish in that, in the beginning, the few hotels that were, you know, functioning, they were serving food to outsiders. And then by about day two of this, the residents were like, wait a second, you know, we can't, these are, these are interlopers. They're foreign barbarians. We must protect our supplies. And so they turned away anybody from the outside and you got to eat what diminishing stores we had inside. It was pretty intense. Well, it's a story for, for years to come. Definitely. Hopefully. And I just, uh, I, I would just like to testify Jonah is correct because I'm in Chicago. We've got three feet of snow on the ground. We got 18 inches the other day. Like they don't cancel school, nothing. I mean, we're, we're all about it. It's like, so 
In DC, my kids, uh, they get, were virtual and they got a snow day. Explain that to me. <laughs> the teachers couldn't make it from the living room to the kitchen to get to the computer. I don't know what happened. Amy, but about the, the situation with the power, I was thinking the other day that here is Texas, and obviously there are multiple things that went wrong on the grid and, and weathering and all that stuff. But here's Texas that has this storm, and they, they totally lose power, and it becomes a major, major issue. We're on the cusp of making cars electric. You know, GM is going to transition to electric cars. If we can't power Texas how is our grid going to handle everybody plugging in their electric cars? Oh, I see what you're saying. I think the issue, it's like with everything, right? Like, right, we have the capacity to do it. We just have to have the organization and the structure to handle it. And I think what we learned, of course, is, you know, one of the challenges of having your own grid is that you don't have a backup if a once in a hundred year, whatever many years, this event occurs like this. So in some ways, you're right, it doesn't make a whole bunch of sense for Texas to invest a lot of money on insulating their fuel lines and their windmills, whatever, for the possibility that they're going to get this freak snowstorm that's going to plunge the state into a freezer for almost a week. At the same time, if you are on your own grid without any ability to then say to those in the West or the East, hey, can we borrow some because we're in a little bit of trouble here, then this is what you get. And I think, um, look, it was it was a, it put in pretty stark display to all Texans. And that's the question in front of them, right? If they want to have that question, which is uh, to say to their elected officials, look, okay, we get it. Here was the deal. Being on our own system meant that we had much more flexibility. We didn't have to live by some of the uh, federal regulation. It also meant that we could try out this concept of, um, uh, you know, having a uh, more of a free market when it comes to electricity. But for the folks who are on the free market right now, who have $10,000 electric bills, they probably have a very different opinion about it than they did Mm -hmm. last year. So what I would love to be able to see, and let's I hope we can actually have a real conversation about how this stuff works. And and Americans finally got to see, unfortunately, it had to be in such a, uh, it's usually like this, though, in, in, in a crisis where you see how your government, how your infrastructure actually works. And there we are. Yeah. So, Tom, we're in the process of this 1.9 trillion coronavirus debate on this bill. Um, which we found out today, none of the funds for schools actually are scheduled to be spent in 2021. So all the talk about that money is needed for opening schools is seems um, a little misplaced. But we got all of this debate about 1.9 trillion. But really, uh, on the big picture after Texas, infrastructure has to be front and center uh, on a number of fronts. It's not just roads, it's literally our grid. Yes. And, and <clears throat> I think the good news is there's a lot of bipartisan agreement on that fact. I mean, Republicans and Democrats, infrastructure's long been, I think, at the top of the list uh, in terms of something that, that everybody thinks needs doing, right? Roads, bridges, airports, et cetera. I, I think there's a difference of opinion about how to pay for it. Um, but, but there has been um, pretty solid bipartisan support for that. I suspect that this will is another example, data point that's going to, 
to increase that. But, you know, look, I think Amy's right. Just going back to Texas for a second. I mean, I read a, read a couple of stories that said, but for the folks who are working, who were sort of quick on the switch of, of setting these rolling blackouts, that it could have been much, much worse, like months long uh, blackouts in Texas, you know, like Lord of the Flies type stuff. And, and government is, bureaucracies are, they're reactive. They don't plan ahead for these things. They don't have contingencies. Um, it's only after you have a, a crisis situation like this that, that, you know, there's an after action report and, and people figure out exactly what and try and, you know, rectify and fight the last war, not not necessarily be looking ahead to, OK, what else might happen in the future that could cause these these kinds of crises that we can plan ahead for? That's sort of the normal state of things. But um, but certainly moving ahead with infrastructure would be something that, again, a lot of people would be invested in and it would be good for the country. Jonah, let me turn to coronavirus. Uh, I've heard a lot of increased frustration about the messaging on coronavirus. And that is, you had Dr. Fauci out this weekend, and he could not answer if grandparents both got the dual shots, the second dose, could they then see their grandchild? And he wouldn't answer that question, saying he's going to wait for the guidelines to come out. I guess that's it's just frustrating for people. Like you finally go through the thing, you get the vaccine, it's 94% effective. Kids don't have a lot of chance of getting it. And yet there's still an apprehension about telling us what we can and cannot do. Yeah, no, I, I agree entirely. I mean, I, I was just writing a column about this, you know, the Biden, because he's a new president, he gets a certain grace period, you know, he gets a sort of fresh start kind of thing. The problem is, is that the pandemic, the frustration with the pandemic is cumulative. We've been doing yeah. this for a year now and you can cut Biden slack for being at the beginning of his presidency, but you know, he campaigned on a back to normalcy of being like sort of not Donald Trump. He's accomplished that. The problem he has now is that for most people, when they're talking about back to normal, they're talking about getting the pandemic behind them. And you get the sense that, you know, part of it is a prudential thing. They're trying to under promise and over deliver. And I get that. And, that's all fine. And maybe it's even advisable. But at the same time, you get the sense, you know, whether it's from Fauci or just from the administration in general, that that this is somewhat of a Obama administration replay of a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And you saw Biden being very reluctant to answer the question in that CNN town hall about when things will get back to normal. And he finally said next Christmas, which is not something anybody wants to hear. And I do wonder that if this package passed, they would then all of a sudden be a little more, you know, rosy scenario and optimistic about all of this. But there seems to be partly a political strategy to say the crisis isn't, isn't over. We're not through the woods yet. We're not, you know, we don't see the light of the tunnel. And that's why we need to have this package. And maybe the messaging will miraculously write itself once they get what they want on the political end. But the, the anger and frustration out in real America about all of this is palpable. This administration is sort of caught in the switches between what the base wants and what the sort of mainstream obvious good politics are. And that wedge, Amy, is real. I mean, that, that's, you hear it on the streets. It's not uh, ideological. It's Democrats, Republicans, frustration about getting their kids back to school and the thought of wearing a mask in 2022. Right. I mean, I think we have two things going on. The first is you're... I, I am fascinated to see how much of the country, even when we say vaccination checked off the list, everybody who wants wants to get vaccinated has gotten vaccinated. How many people are going to still 
be worried about getting on a plane, going into a restaurant, going to a sporting event. I mean, I think there is still going to be some lingering concern that is not the idea that things are going to open up and people are just going to pour into it uh, may not happen. But I think what if you're the Biden administration, your bigger concern is the following. People start getting their vaccines and then other folks, maybe who weren't vaccinated, say, well, everything's fine. Like mom and dad got vaccinated and the next door neighbors and we don't really need to wear masks and things are getting better. Right. And then we have uptick in certain regions of the country and then we have shut down again and then we go back to sort of where we started. But I do think that for most folks, we they're already doing these things, Brett. Like you can already feel even the people that I know who at the beginning of this were like freaked out or wouldn't yeah. let anybody do anything. Right? right now it's like, meh, eh, kids are going to be, be all right. The kids will be fine. It's just one play like, date. Just, right. And so that's <laughs> happening already. So it's best, you know, it's sort of like get everybody vaccinated, keep people safe, but also say, be just be smart. Right. I think that's the that's the bigger thing to to put forward. Be smart. Don't do stupid things. Don't. And by stupid things, meaning just be cautious. Uh, That could work better than saying, yeah, all right, everybody. Never leave. So it's interesting. Yeah. Well, in Israel, it's interesting. The messaging around the vaccination stuff is almost 180 degrees different. It is get vaccinated and that's how you get back to normal life. Once you're vaccinated, you're okay. And I think for a lot of Americans, that's the appeal of the vaccine. And this idea that somehow you still got to wear a mask a year after you're vaccinated or something, people are like, I don't get it. And then I I don't get it. I I mean, I just honestly, I don't, if I'm vaccinated, I'll tell you, if I make someone uncomfortable, I'll put on a mask out of politeness. But uh, I'm going to feel pretty confident that even if I get COVID, it's not going to be severe because that's what the science shows. And um, and I'll be careful about, you know, you know, not sneezing on people, but I'm careful about that anyway. It, right. it does seem like there are a lot of people who like this idea of micromanaging public health and society in ways that just don't want to let go of that control. I'm not trying to say they're all sinister mustache twirling villains. But they're doing a really, really bad job of persuading a lot of people that they're not. Exactly. So <laughs> what happens is, is that somebody looks at that and they can't answer the question that once you have the vaccine, you can talk to your grandkids. If they can't, then it's almost like, well, why am I getting the vaccine? That does right. more damage to getting people getting the vaccine than I think even the <laughs> anti-vaxxers do. You know, Tom, I don't know, maybe I'm misplaced, but I just wish that the messaging was on the Mm -hmm. same page. We hear one thing from Biden at the town hall. We hear another thing from Jen Psaki at the White House briefing. And then we hear another thing from Fauci on the weekend shows. Right. And a couple points. I mean, one, you know, in some ways, this is what Biden, the problem with his his campaign, right, that he promised he was going to, first he said, we're in for a really dark winter, dark winter, it's going to get worse before it gets better. It was all sort of doom and gloom, but that he was going to get in there and fix it. Um, and it's proving that that it's not as easy uh, as, as it was made out to be. And they're having as many issues uh, with messaging as, as, you know, Trump did with it his turns folks. out wasn't just Trump. Yeah, exactly. With the, with the messaging. Um, and I also think, quite frankly, the Democrats, you go back to the, the teachers union issue. And I mean, listen, the Chicago's teachers union has been one of the most, you know, obstinate, 
uh, in the country in terms of their unwillingness to go back into the classrooms and putting forth, you know, these lists of demands like hostage takers that they won't do until they get, you know, all of these X, Y, and Z things, many of them that don't even have anything to do with safety in the classroom. Um, and it, it clearly, and you've seen the administration struggle with this because it is at odds with the science, right? The science tells us that these, you know, we can go back to classrooms. They're not, they're not in danger of being, you know, uh, hotspots for transmissions, et cetera, especially if you follow the sort of basic rules that Amy was talking about, which, which everybody I think should and, and will follow from now on, which is, you know, keep your distance, wash your hands, cover your face. If you, you know, if you want to, or if you're feeling sick or whatever, stay home. But the idea that, that kids are still not in school, the idea that kids may not go back to school in the fall, high schoolers may not, I mean, in our area, you've got parents and I assume and, and I live in a very liberal area, very progressive area. And, and even here, you've got parents that are absolutely beside themselves at the way that they, the school board has handled things, the way the teachers unions are handling things. So it, it is not a political issue. It, it's Republicans, Democrats, independents. It's across the board. And it, is, it, is a, it, it could be a potent political issue if, and the Biden administration has had the opportunity to stand up and take on the teachers unions. I mean, just imagine, you know, he talks about this, he, he was the centrist and he was going to, do, you know, there was a perfect opportunity for him to demonstrate that in a real tangible way by telling the teachers unions, you know, cut the crap, get these kids back in school, right, for their health, for their mental health, emotional health, for all the learning that's been lost this year. And they simply have not been willing to do that. And I think that does not bode well for for what's what's coming. But it also adds to the frustration and the fact that that for for, you know, the last year we were told. We've got to follow science, got to follow science, and now we're not following the science. Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Let's turn quickly to Capitol Hill. You've got uh, the OMB director nominee, Amy Neeratandon, uh, dire straits here as far as votes. Uh, Joe Manchin says no. Uh, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski all saying no. Um, But the White House is sticking with it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those at some point it becomes beyond obvious and, you know, or either make them take the vote and then say, all right, we'll go back to round two as a way to show their support for Tandon. Look, we, we knew all along that this was the bigger challenge of all of the nominees for Biden to go forward. When Dems took control of the Senate, I think there, even then there was some thinking about like, oh, maybe Bernie Sanders would be a problem for near attendance. And she spent a lot of her time on Twitter making comments about him and his supporters. But at the end of the day, look, this is, this is the thing, as Tom pointed out, when you run as, as a candidate who's a uniter, who says we want to get back to civility, who says no more, if you work for me and I find out that you've done bad things to people, I'm going to fire you, then you're going to be held by those standards. And, you know, Donald Trump never ran as saying I'm going to be a great unifier and I'm never going to tweet mean things about people. So yeah, uh, he did. He, he really let people down. He, like, did not let <laughs> <laughs> so like his tweets were his tweets. Like we, you knew what you're going to get. But if it, and so I think, you know, 
on, on the one hand, you could say this is kind of ridiculous that someone gets taken taken out, not not for their position on any issues or, you know, something more substantive, but because they said mean things about people in tweets. That's true. But at the same time, this is somebody who has to work very closely with Congress. So you're not starting off on a great foot, first yeah. of all. But more important, your boss said this is a priority of mine. And then everybody's going to be held to that standard. Yeah, to the point where, I mean, when I saw her name up there and that there was all the talk about possibilities of, of nominees having problems, Jonah, I, I thought she might be the sacrificial lamb here because every administration usually has one that doesn't get through. If Biden just loses near a tandem and gets everybody else through, he'd have the most successful nomination since Ronald Reagan. But yeah. I think potentially it opens the door for others like Javier Becerra could have problems at, at HHS uh, with some of the things he's done and said before too, Jonah. Yeah. I mean, and it's starting to dawn. It's interesting. It's starting to dawn on some conservatives that if you could trade killing Becerra's nomination for Tandon's, that would be a good trade for a lot of conservatives from the point of view of a lot of conservatives. He's more radical is and has more more agenda stuff and damage that he could do from a fair, from a social conservative perspective at at HHS than than Tannen could do at OMB. Whoever's at OMB basically does whatever the president tells them to do. It's an executive function office. I think that was one of the problems that Tannen had is that she brought no. I mean, I think she's a smart person and all that, but she brought no obvious like expertise for that job. She's a creature of the sort of partisan beltway fights. And I agree with you. It seemed to me, I thought that she was sort of like the $15 minimum wage thing in the COVID package. I assume they put that in there to take it out. Mm-hmm. And I thought I kind of, in some ways, I kind of thought that she was the human shield for, for other things, but it seems like that's not the internal dynamics inside the administration. They really want to fight for her. And I, I think it was just a wasted opportunity for them politically. Last thing, Tom, uh, you know, for all the talk about bipartisanship, it doesn't seem like there's a bill in the making coming soon that's going to achieve that. I think they're going to swing for the fences on immigration. Uh, COVID clearly is heading down a pretty partisan vote track. Uh, we talked about infrastructure, but that seems even a, a bit much at this point. But we'll see, I guess. Yeah, COVID is is having a bit of a bumpy ride, and and you know they're going to have uh, figure out whether. They can do budget reconciliation, but you're right. I mean, the next thing that's on deck is is a massive immigration package that while it has all of the sort of liberal bells and whistles, right, decreasing the path to citizenship down to eight years, et cetera, et cetera, doesn't even give a nod to Republicans on anything like border security, nothing. I mean, so it seems like it's, again, if Biden wanted, first of all, if he wanted to be bipartisan and have unity, he wouldn't pick an issue like immigration to, to put on, you know, right on the top of the deck. Number two, if you were going to do it, then at least do it in a way that that feigns bipartisanship, have some Republicans sit down, ask them what they're concerned about, work that into the bill uh, and move it forward that way. But that's not how this is going. And so I think it's uh, for those who were hoping that Biden was going to have some some real bipartisanship in his governing. Um, right now, it's 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 all talk and no action. And so I, mean, I, I think, think it's, you know, after covering Washington for twenty years, I've determined that any bill that starts with comprehensive is doomed. <laughs> right, literally doomed. <laughs> 
just do bits and pieces, people. Exactly, around the edges. But, you know, this is the problem because you only get one bite at the apple now. When your party's in power, which, you know, again, Democrats have a very tenuous hold on it, um, very easily could be gone in the next midterm election. you got to get as much done as you can in your first 10 months. And so you push through. It's like, yes, could we get something that's bipartisan that has not everything we want? Sure. But why do that? When we can get everything we want this one time, because the odds are we're not going to be back in this same position in two years. And so this is how we do legislating now. This is what happened with the tax bill in Obamacare. 2017 but, and Obamacare. And but taxes. Amy, where is immigration on the list of priorities of the American public? Certainly in relation to something like COVID Trump, or education. Right. This right? isn't going to go anywhere right? This seems more like a messaging bill because they know it's not going anywhere. When they actually put it forward in, you know, the real time for it to happen was after the 2012 election, when you had Republicans truly on board with comprehensive and then it died in the House. And I think now it's realistically not, nothing's going to happen except for some executive orders. Yep. That's true. That's the truth. All right. Uh, Jonah, it's good to have you back from uh, the apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, it is great to be here. <laughs> glad, <laughs> glad it worked out. Thank you all very much. Here's a bit of historical trivia. On February 27, 1951, the 22nd Amendment of the Constitution was ratified by the states. This new amendment came soon after President Franklin Delano Roosevelt passed away while carrying out his fourth term in office. It was soon agreed upon by Congress that they should impose a limit of two terms, ensuring that a president could serve no longer than eight years. That will do it for this week. Wherever you download podcasts, please download this one. We've got you covered. More panel discussion coming for Amy and Jonah and Tom. I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.